I didn't have a career I, I truly loved yet when I had my daughter, or at least I'd only just discovered it. I didn't have this great concern about losing something because perhaps I hadn't had it yet, if that makes sense. So I very much have developed my ambition at the same time as raising my young family. They've absolutely gone hand in hand for me. And that's why, for me, ambition is very much a multifaceted concept. It's not just about my own career. It's about what I want for my life, my family, for how we live our life and the kind of opportunities that we have as a result of that. Welcome back to the Big Careers Small Children podcast, formerly known as Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. I've set up this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus fellowship program because I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your leadership career whilst enjoying your young children in a way that works for you and your family. Today's guest is Gabriel Davis. She has been part of my community for quite a number of years now. She's been part of the inaugural Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme in 2018 and she was someone who helped with the initial development of the concept for which I'll always be truly grateful for. She works for Orsted, which is a global green energy company and she's in the leadership team building the world's biggest offshore wind farm, an extremely interesting and also often challenging role. We talk about ambition and why it isn't a dirty word. She's quite honest in her reflection about how to thrive in an environment that is mainly male-dominated, which most environments that are full of engineers are, sadly, and also why men are just integral to conversations about gender equality. And she gives some really practical suggestions on what she's learned from her two returns from maternity leave and how she's done things differently the second time round. For those of you who are listening and would like to connect with others in an active community of like-minded peers beyond the podcast, then definitely check out the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. You'll get a senior leader mentor, a super supportive, diverse community of peers who are all ambitious unapologetically about work, but also love their families. And you'll get new ideas, time to think, world-class access to information and support progress your career as a parent so we're always looking for people who are very keen to support others going through the same thing so if this captures your interest then yes please take a look and apply i think by the time this podcast goes out applications will probably be open but if not just register interest and if you don't have much money that's okay there are some hardship fund places available so finance shouldn't be a barrier and equally, this year, for the first time, we will have a global track, a global community. So hopefully that shouldn't be a barrier anymore that you need to be based in the UK. Anyways, I know you're going to really enjoy the conversation I've had with Gabriel. I always find some of the best chats happen when you know the person quite well. So we set the words to write. And as always, let us know what you think via at leaders underscore plus or at vhefty on Twitter or Instagram. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. A very warm welcome, Gabriel, to the podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here and have a chance to have a proper chat after you've been on the first court of the fellowship, I think. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, who you are, who's in your family and what you do for work? 
Thank you so much, Farina. It's a huge honor to be asked to be a guest on this podcast. I've been an avid listener since you first started it. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm Gabriel Davis. I am a commercial director at Allstead, and that's a global green energy company. So I basically work on building massive offshore wind farms, and I absolutely love it. In terms of my family, I've got two children. I've got Cleo, who just turned eight, and Xander, who turns five tomorrow. And my wonderful husband, Will, who lectures in philosophy at Oxford University. Fantastic. And for those of us who don't work in your sector, can you just give us an idea of what's on your plate this week? What type of things do you do? Good question. So actually, last week was quite an interesting one for me. It ranged from, you know, the usual hundreds of teams meetings to running a workshop for 30 people. We're trying to solve the big challenge on one of our projects. I also gave a presentation at the Danish-UK Association at the Danish Embassy in London, I'm giving an update on my, my project, the Hornsey 2 Offshore Wind Farm, other things. So yeah, just working with various team members, lots of coaching conversations. So I'd say my work week is pretty varied on the whole. Sounds really interesting. We actually got onto this idea of having a podcast conversation because we came up against this, this question around what ambition is and whether ambition is a dirty word. Can you tell me a bit about your personal relationship with the word ambition, how you felt about it 10 years ago, how you feel about it now, what's changed, if anything? Absolutely. I think the word ambition is so interesting. It's something I've reflected on quite a lot. I would say, you know, 10 years ago, I would have heard the word ambitious and thought, oh, no, no, I, I can't be ambitious. That's not me. Ambition is someone who is just interested in power, in lots of money and position, you know, in being a leader, not necessarily because, you know, it's for, it's for a greater good or the right cause, just because they want to be in control. So I felt like ambition was not something that I could or should be. I think it's also fair to say that from my perspective, I didn't feel particularly ambitious about my own career. When I started out in my 20s, I was a lawyer. So I went into law because I felt like that was that was a good thing to do. I come from a family of academics. So everyone in my family, everyone has a PhD apart from me. So I thought, okay, so, so I need to do something, something serious, something professional. Okay, I'll be a lawyer. And honestly, I was probably distinctly average at best. I didn't feel particularly good at it. I didn't really love it. That probably reflected in how I did and so I guess I didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I can really see this amazing future career ahead of me. And then in my late 20s, I was sort of sent on this surprise secondment to my current organization. And I went into working in renewable energy. And almost overnight, I discovered this passion, what it meant to be passionate about one's work, about what you do, really caring about that. And it meaning something so much more than just going to work because that's what one does. So I suppose I kind of learned a bit later on, really, that ambition for me meant having a career that brought me joy, that I felt mattered, that really challenged me, but also where I could see my future. Ambition is a word where you can feel maybe a little bit insecure if you're described as ambitious, perhaps. And I think particularly so for women, I would say, but I really focus on reframing what that word means. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting because you and I, we talked before even the Leaders Plus Fellowship was born. Mm -hmm. I can't remember how we got into touch. I think probably a friend introduced yes. us and I asked you, you know, what would you need from a fellowship program like that and so on and so forth. And I think we connected over the idea that actually we shouldn't have to be apologetic about the ambition that we have and we should be able, anyone should be able to be a parent and at the same time to 
give themselves permission to be really ambitious if that's what they want to do. There just shouldn't be this thing that you need to leave your ambitious at, at the door and that it makes you a bad mother if you're ambitious, I think. Did you grapple with that at any point or were you always very confidently that it's okay for you to be ambitious? Or did you ever feel like, mm, maybe I should, you know, that, maybe that makes me a bad mother? I mean, it's definitely something I thought about. I think though it's it's probably fair to say I was raised very much with the idea that you will go and, and have a career. My mother is a very successful academic. She's a historian. And so I was raised with this incredibly strong woman and also my father's also an academic. You know, there was no sense that we, I've got two sisters, so that the three girls could not go have a career and, and absolutely that we should be ambitious for it. You know, we watched both of my parents raise us alongside the very busy jobs. And, and I could definitely see that it wasn't easy. I mean, my mother, she hates me telling the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. When I was 11, we had to give a little speech at school. And I gave a speech about the fact that I'd had 11, you know, after school childminders by the age of 11. And her reflection was that made her look like a bad mother. I think it made her look like an amazing mother because I now realize, you know, how challenging that was to try and find that childcare. And, you know, so that she and my father could keep their careers going. So I definitely always had that sense that I wanted to have a career and I would, we would somehow balance and juggle that. But I also, I suppose, because I didn't have a career I, I truly loved yet when I had my daughter, or at least I'd only just discovered it. I didn't have this great concern about losing something because perhaps I hadn't had it yet, if that makes sense. So I very much have developed my ambition at the same time as raising my young family. They've absolutely gone hand in hand for me. And that's why, for me, ambition is very much a multifaceted concept. It's not just about my own career. It's about what I want for my life, my family, for how we live our life and the kind of opportunities that we have as a result of that. And I think you've done the fellowship now four years ago. Wow, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Has it influenced you in any way do you think in relation you don't have to say if you're saying it's really bad and so on then you know <laughs> we'll just take that as feedback and might edit it out but ha has it influenced in any shape or form how you think about yourself and ambition oh it definitely did it was a wonderful fellowship I mean obviously I, I did it when I just come back to work after having my second child so I was in a very different phase from some of the other fellows and perhaps had more confidence as a result because I'd had two maternity leaves had two kind of returning to work experiences which were quite different from each other uh, second one far more positive but what I really focused on in that fellowship and what I really took away from it was that absolutely being ambitious was a good thing and it wasn't just a good thing for me personally it was also a good thing for my partner it was a good thing for my children and it was a really good thing for my team at work for other women and not even just other women at work but actually a lot of other men because it was saying that that we yes we can be ambitious and want to have a career that we develop and we grow and we want to go into leadership positions. But I also was absolutely unapologetic about the fact that I had a young family and that I had boundaries that I set. And the fellowship for me really affirmed that those boundaries were right and that I had to be very confident in those boundaries and in asserting with the people I worked with that, yes, I can still achieve what I need to achieve, but I'm going to finish work at three o'clock on a Friday because that's the day I want to go pick up my kids from school. I'm intrigued by your comment about how ambition is perceived by gender. What are your thoughts on that? 
So, I mean, I work in a very male-dominated environment. I, you know, the, the energy industry, it's big industry, right? It's a lot, a lot of engineers. I'm not an engineer either, so I suppose that makes me stick out even more. I will say that, that the people I work with are absolutely wonderful. I, it might be a male-dominated team, but my goodness, I have some fabulous colleagues who are incredibly supportive and very open and very inclusive. But I think it's also fair to say that there perhaps is a slightly different perception of what a female leader looks like, maybe particularly in a male-dominated environment. So, you know, sometimes words come around like intimidating, you know, or very, very clear, very direct. You feel, well, I think it's a good thing to be those things, but, but as a female, should I be those things? So perhaps it's more of an internalized sort of self-doubt and questioning, perhaps more than anyone else thinks about it. But definitely from conversations with some really incredible female colleagues, I think I'm not the only one who has those moments of, is this the way that I should be perceived as a woman? Or should I just say, this is who I am? I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm always taking feedback. I want to listen and learn and do better. But ultimately, this is who I am. This is how I need to be to succeed. And if that means that I'm ambitious and some people might find that intimidating, then maybe I just have to own that. Mm. I've read a really interesting book by Mary Ann Seacart, um, The Authority Gap, and that basically summarizes all the research about why women who are ambitious or who are in leadership roles are seen slightly differently than men. I think to an extent, you know, often people then say, well, I don't want to be like a man, and I don't think anyone should be like a man, but we should just give ourselves permission, like you say, to be who we are. And that might mean not fitting in with the socialization. So we've all, lots of us who were, you know, who were girls have been socialized to be kind, to let, I mean, even my daughter, she lets other people have the last chocolate. And I have trained her to let other people always have the last chocolate. And now I'm suddenly asking myself, is that the right thing? You know, we've all been socialized to that to a large or, or um, smaller extent. And actually, I think we need to just accept that if we do want to be leaders, we are going to not always let people have the last chocolate because maybe that last chocolate needs to go to someone else in order for the organization to achieve its aims. And that's totally fine. I completely agree. I think there's, for me, there's a lot of it around being authentic and, and what's your authentic self. And I, I am quite feminine, actually. So, you know, it might be that everyone on my project team is wearing their sort of project polo shirts that's not really my style. I don't feel like I have to wear one if that's not who I am. You know, I'm proud to sort of say, this is how I want to dress. I'm just going to present myself in the way that feels right and feels authentic to me because I genuinely believe that the more authentic you are, you know, the more that everybody's going to relate to you, even if you are the one non-engineering female <laughs> in an organization. If I tried my best just to sort of be like everybody else, it wouldn't be authentic. And I don't think people would be able to relate to me. And I think it's really hard to be a great leader if you're not relatable and if you don't have sort of empathy for other people. So I agree, we shouldn't always be giving people the last chocolate, but perhaps what I'd like to see even more of is encouraging that everybody is offering someone else that last chocolate rather than actually saying, no, to succeed, we have to have it. Mm -hmm. Beautifully. I love how you close that chocolate analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And I think we need to accept that the world is going to be very different in 30 or 40 years time. And until it is, until there is more equality, we just have to deal with the fact that we're 
actually, even in 40 years' time, I have to deal with the fact that we're just all slightly different and that's okay. And we should embrace that rather than seeing that as something negative. In that spirit, tell me, is there anything that you've brought, given that you're from a lawyer background, from a you're a woman in environment where there are lots of male engineers, is there anything that you've brought that you think made a big difference to the organization because you had a slightly different approach? Oh, I don't know. I should probably ask some other people that. I mean, I hope that certainly within the leadership team that I work, that they find value in having a woman there who can give that other perspective. I mean, I'm so fortunate that the team I work with are so open, such wonderful listeners. So I can challenge them. I can say, you know, we need to be really careful that we don't talk about man hours, that we talk about person hours. It's kind of encouraging more inclusive conversation, actually, to the extent where now I don't need to say anything because they're the ones calling out those kind of examples within the wider team and within our organization. So I hope I brought, you know, awareness at least and showing that you can come from a completely different background, but still share the same passion for what we're all trying to achieve. I love that example. And I actually realized I myself use man hours and it's so easy to just get used to that language, isn't it? And not even realize it. Are there any other practical things that your organization maybe has changed or you have changed within your team? Yeah, so so a very practical one, actually, was female fit PPE. So PPE is personal protective equipment. And obviously, um, working in, effectively, we do a lot of construction work, right? So we build massive offshore wind farms, onshore wind farms, you know, a lot of different uh, green energy technologies in my company. And so whenever we visit site, or of course, we have people working on site, you have to be wearing PPE. And a few years ago, some of us who are part of our gender inclusion network, we're just saying it's so difficult for us because we go to site and we have, it's called unisex, but unisex is male fit. And my experience of going and doing site visits um, as part of the senior leadership team was that I was wandering around site in this PPE clothing and I felt like a 10-year-old in my dad's clothes. It's not very empowering when clothes don't fit you, when they're hugely baggy when you're completely swamped. And I'm 5'9", I'm quite tall, but still you, you don't feel like yourself. And that's something that's really important on a practical note as well. It's not very safe if you have clothing that's that's too big and that's dragging. And so we got together, we had a few conversations. My organization very quickly, you know, entered into a, a different supply deal with the supplier we had. And now we have a catalog that has uh, female fit personal protective equipment. And it's it seems like such a small thing, but it makes a real difference. You know, for me, it's just the, the few times that I visit site, that's maybe once a quarter, maybe, you know, up to sort of five, six times a year, perhaps. But for others, they're on site every day. And so to be, even just have clothes that are designed for them, so important. Mm, well done. And you've started the gender inclusion networks as well, haven't you? Yes, absolutely do not take sole credit for that. So I was one of a few people who kickstarted this network. It was actually back in London in 2016. I think there were probably six of us sitting around a table. And it has grown today to a global network in my organization of around a thousand people. It originally was called Women in Orsted. My organization is, is Orsted. And it's now called Gender Inclusion because what's so important to us is that actually it's about inclusion. And including men and those who, who might identify with a different gender in that conversation is absolutely critical. So we very much shifted it from a focus on women to actually saying everyone of every gender identity should be included. And actually bringing men into the conversation has been a huge part of the kind of success and growth of that conversation within the organization. And certainly when it comes to, you know, this conversation of how you balance your career and having children, I think we don't talk enough 
about men, about dads. And, you know, I have so many amazing colleagues who are fathers of young children. And they're all saying to me, it's the same struggle. They want to progress their career, perform at work, but they also want to spend time with their young families. So I think, you know, we, we do focus this conversation a lot on women. And of course, that makes sense given certainly, you know, societal norms and backgrounds and gender pay gap and, and all of that. But actually, we need to open it up more. We need to have policies that support equal parental leave. And I think embracing actually fathers and their experience is only going to increase inclusion and gender equality across the board. Mm, I couldn't agree more. When I started Leaders Plus, I was really surprised how many of the older women I consulted with, because I did a lot of calls like I did with you, really asking what is the need here, what do we need to do, what's the research, what's the evidence and so on. And a lot of the older women I talked to, they said quite frequently, this is a women's issue, you should just focus on women because the unique experience and the disadvantage women experience is is so strong. And of course, there is a different level of disadvantage you get if you have children, if you're a woman, often, like we talked about perception, women are seen as less committed if they have children and so on. However, from the very start, it was very clear we have to have men involved. And we do now have 10% of men on the fellowship every year. And as, as you say, only when we both, all genders, not both genders, all genders are talking about how we combine a vicious career with young children, only then we're going to have gender equality. And men face very similar things. I've heard stories of dads being counseled out of shared parental leave because, oh yeah, do you want to really sacrifice your career or so? You know, things that can be really unsettling if you're a young dad and you want to just do the best. So yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, I was having a conversation with a, a close colleague of mine the other day. He's a father of young children, very ambitious, very successful, as is his wife. But he really struggles with this expectation that in his role as an engineering leader, he needs to be a certain type of person. We were joking, but actually equally, I think, disturbed by a message that he was sent on LinkedIn, a recruiter, saying that they were looking for, for someone like him to fill an engineering lead role at another organization. And they needed someone who had a warrior mentality. And using that kind of language really summed up to us the challenges that you see, particularly in our industry, of these perceptions of, of what a man should be and what it takes to be a successful leader. It's not only damaging to women, because very much what they were saying was women need not apply. I mean, let's, you know. <laughs> but what it's also saying is if you want to succeed as a male, you need to have that very aggressive sort of, you know, the, the war kind of metaphors coming into play there. It's going into battle. And that, I think, is quite damaging because it is that suggestion that it's, it's do or die. You know, you have this mentality, it's to the end, nothing else matters. And as we've learned, certainly uh, on the project that I've been working on for the last several years, that's absolutely not a way to succeed. And that kind of attitude is so damaging, obviously, to women, but also to men. So I think there, for me, it's about saying, you know, we need to be encouraging of just being authentic and being ourselves and not creating this divide in what it is to be a successful man and what it is to be a successful woman, because too often it's very polarizing. And, you know, if you're a woman who's seen as ambitious in that traditional sense that I talked about at the beginning, well, that's no good. That's kind of terrifying, scary and too intimidating. But if you're a man, it's almost saying, if you want to be successful, you need to be like that. And I just don't believe that that's true. What I've experienced that the last four years on my project is the most successful project that I've ever worked on or any kind of deliverable I've been a part of over my career. And 
if I could describe the way that we work, we focus on vulnerability, psychological safety, feedback, inclusion, collaboration, communication, all those words, which maybe some people might sound a bit fluffy, but we've been building the world's largest offshore wind farm in a pandemic. Those have been the things that made us successful. It's not having a warrior mentality. Mm, I love that. That's so powerful. I interviewed Elio Dre, who campaigns for men, actually just last week for this podcast, and we'll be releasing early January. And he says that those messages, like a warrior, that also does damage to men themselves. Apparently, he told me that men are much more at higher risk of suicide. They're obviously you lose out if you, you know, on wonderful things with your kids if you don't feel confident enough to be able to take shared parental leave because of the messaging. So it's really good. And I know that there have been some good things happening at Orsted with share parental leave and pushing that and supporting men to contribute to the conversation, which is really, really excellent. So let me just come to the network that you started. There will be a few people listening who are interested in doing something similar. How did you go about it? And what have you learned? Oh, my goodness. Learned so much. So those of us involved at the beginning, I think it's fair to say none of us had any idea what we were doing. We just knew we really cared about it. We were really passionate that we absolutely loved our industry, but there just weren't enough of us. You know, that time when we all got in the room, that's the most women that they'd ever been in a room <laughs> together. And I think what we learned is that actually we were pretty much pushing our open doors, right? This wasn't a conversation that was unwelcome, but it was more a sense of, well, it feels so hard. How do you really make change? It's so hard. And that's true. It is hard. You can't change things overnight. You know, this is years and years of kind of societal bias against women and, and, you know, going back to who chooses to do the sort of subjects that get you onto an engineering degree. We can't solve that in one organization. But I think starting those conversations, um, having a really open dialogue with senior leadership made a huge impact. And we were so fortunate and we remain very fortunate that our senior leadership is really kind of on board. They work in partnership with us. So they make us part of the conversation and they come to us sort of saying, you know, with a policy or a suggestion and, you know, how do you think this will work with the wider network, with the organization? So it feels much more like a two-way conversation. We can give them feedback and they listen. And also they can sort of frame for us what it means from the business strategy overall. What were the first three things that you did? If someone is listening and wants to do the same thing practically, how did you get it started? So the first few things we did, this was before we had a Yammer channel. That's first piece of advice, very much get a Yammer channel. And if your organization uses it, really great way to connect with people to share updates. So we didn't have that, but we did organize events. And that was sort of the first thing that we did. So we invited various guest speakers to come in. And usually they were um, sort of experts in their field. We hosted a panel event. I think, Brina, you came to one of our early events mm -hmm. yes, as well. And so that was a way to, you know, get people along sort of breakfast briefings and just start the conversation. People could ask questions, a very sort of open and welcoming environment. And I think the framing of, of who it was for, I think one thing that we learned early on is actually that men felt quite isolated from the early conversations. And definitely there was a lot of back and forth between us. Should we be called women in Orsted or, or should we have a different branding, a different name? And in the early days, you know, I, I don't regret that we did focus on women. I think that was really important to sort of get that secure base, to make sure we had a safe space for women to come and talk about their experience, to be able to be open and say, to really put the focus right on the issue of trying to improve 
the sort of gender split across our organization. But as we developed over the next few years, it didn't feel right anymore. And I think where we are in the conversation now, I think if I was starting the network again, I think we'd probably focus much more on a much broader sort of gender inclusion conversation. Because overall, you just hear so much more about it now even than back in you know five years ago or something. So we've, we've come a long way in that time. The three things I would say is, is be inclusive, welcome everybody to the conversation. I think making it a really safe space is super important. And also it's about education. People want to learn. You know, whether you're hosting an event, a Q&A, or just sharing articles or podcasts, that's something that we found worked really well to get people part of the conversation. I think also just not to overthink it. Just organize the first thing and see how it goes. And then take it, then after that, decide exactly what the plan is and the objectives. Because sometimes these things can get stuck in the door for quite a long time. And I think the other thing, which I think you have done, if I remember right, is to get a senior sponsor. Yes. That would be extremely important to get someone on board very early on who is on the executive board or something like that can help push your agenda forward later down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And we've actually got a a lot of senior leadership support now. But in the early days, just having one or two people who were going to take that conversation into the senior management meetings and meet with us, listen to us. That was really important, especially before we'd established a slightly more, I don't want to say formal, but a slightly more organized arrangement with senior management, which is what we have now. I think the other really nice thing about networks beyond the kind of cause of what you're doing is that they provide such a fantastic learning and development opportunity. I mean, I certainly learned so much doing it, but we also find that those more junior in their career, it gives them an opportunity to maybe organize an event, do a presentation that perhaps isn't for their immediate day-to-day team. So there's a sort of space for them to maybe practice some of the skills or development areas they're working on and in a really sort of supportive and welcoming place. And perhaps, you know, if you are the only female on an engineering team, maybe joining a network, like for example, the Gender Inclusion One at Allstead, it's just being around people who perhaps you identify identify slightly more easily with can help you get out of your comfort zone and and learn and develop things um, just in a different space. So that was a learning that perhaps I hadn't expected to come out of it, but definitely did. And I absolutely love seeing, you know, more junior people in our organization throwing themselves into the networks and and just gaining so much as a result. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And there's clear evidence that if you spend time on things that aren't your day-to-day and are focused on your longer term aims, and if you network with people who are not linked to your day-to-day delivery targets, you're actually more likely to progress to your career. So by starting a network, you might also support others to do so. We've had a couple of one-off meetings with people within the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme and the alumni who have started networks. So if anyone is listening here and is doing something brilliant with their own network or wants to start one, do send me a message on Felina at leadersplus.org.uk and you can come along. Okay, so... I just want to touch briefly about you returning from maternity leave. So this is a while ago now. Yes, it is. <laughs> Making me feel old. <laughs> sorry, sorry. If you look back now on having returned from maternity leave, not that long ago, but you know, within enough enough distance, <laughs> is there anything you would have done differently? I had two very different returns to work. So I did do them very differently. The first return to work, and I've actually talked quite openly about this at at a Leaders Plus event before. I mean, I was returning to a law firm and I was really 
desperate to show how dedicated I was and how I really wanted to perform and that, you know, having a classic, right? Having a child is not going to stop me. And I think I was billing more hours than any other associate. And I had a six-month baby at home. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it didn't work terribly well for me. I very much got burnout and ended up practically with pneumonia. I got signed off work for two weeks because I got really sick and you know, perhaps they could have supported me more, but actually it was also down to me a lot of it that I didn't have that sort of sense or balance of what I should be doing. The second time around, I was at my current organization, a completely different story. I'd obviously learned a lot from my first return to work, which of course had led me to leave law and then move to Orsted where I am now. And what I did actually just before I went on maternity leave, I sat down with my manager. I took them, a, I think about a six page development plan that I'd written. And I said, okay, so when I come back, this is what I want to be doing. And I was very clear that, you know, having another baby was not going to change my career ambition, you know, what I wanted to achieve, who I was. And I think they were a little bit surprised, but two days into my maternity leave, I had a phone call from my manager saying, you know, I'm promoting you into a line management position. The position will wait for you. It's here when you come back. So I sort of went, even before my son had arrived, I thought it's going to be okay. This time it's going to be different. Not going to say it's easy. You know, you go back to work. We're doing a nanny share. Our nanny quit after 10 days. You know, we quickly had to scramble around to find a nursery instead. And then, of course, they get sick all the time because, you know, when kids go to nursery, they pick up all the bugs. So, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's a tough old time when you come back from maternity leave. However, I think being in a supportive environment and communicating really clearly about what you want before you go on leave and then kind of reasserting that when you come back. That certainly worked very well for me, but also just having my clear boundaries. And I know some people, for them, it might be right to not talk about their family, but I've always been very open, you know, about my kids. You know, if they're sick, this is what I'm, this is what my day is going to look like, you know, or if there's an activity play that I want to attend or, you know, for example, my Fridays, which for me are just, they're pretty much, it takes a lot to take a call after three o'clock on a Friday for me. You do work full time, don't you? I do work full time. I've always done yes. that. Yes. And you work full time unapologetically. Is that right? That is absolutely right. An interesting experience I had probably on both maternity leaves would be people asking me whether it's at baby groups or health sisters. Firstly, like, are you going back to work? Yes. And how many days? And I would say to them, I'm going back to work full time. And oh, but who's going to look after your baby? And you're like, well, I have childcare. You know, I also have a wonderful husband. You know, I can't say personally I've ever felt guilt. My husband and I reflect frequently on the balance that we have, whether it's right, do we need to adjust anything? But we're also so grateful that both of us have careers that we care deeply about, we've worked so hard for. And for us, it's really important to role model to our kids that, you know, that's something that really matters to us and that, that we hope they'll have the same. It doesn't mean it's always easy. It definitely isn't. It's a lot of juggling, taking it in turns, you know, nannies who quit all the time <laughs> because getting people who want to do just after school hours is, is super hard. But uh, yeah, it, it's always been the right thing for me to work full time and certainly the right thing for my husband as well. And we're very fortunate we've been able to make that work so far. And also, you know, our kids seem very happy. That's the most important thing at the end of the day. And we will keep reflecting. I keep having those conversations about whether the kind of balance we have is, is right for us. Mm, absolutely. I think there's a lot of judgment, weirdly, especially against mothers who work full time. But I think it's so important to remember that actually 
everyone should be able to choose exactly. to do what works for them. And I personally work four days a week, but I was planning to work full time. And the only reason I didn't is because my partner proposed, you know, that we both do four days a week, which in the end works really well for us. But I think that is so, so important that we all have permission to work full time. And Rutger Bergman in his book, Utopia for Realist, he explains that in the 1970s, stay-at-home moms spent less time with their kids interacting than nowadays a full-time employed mother does. So someone who's working full-time like you is probably statistically likely to spend more time with the kids than a stay-at-home mom in the 1970s. And I think that's just such a big thing. We need to, we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves to interact with our children. And yeah, we know it's a good thing and I'm not advising anyone to purposefully ignore their child. But also let's give ourselves a break and yeah, I'm sure most of us are good enough parents as it is. So I really feel we should be kind to ourselves. I think that's right. And it's got to be what's right for you as a family. Like what's the right choice for you? And my husband and I, we're always very clear that we, you know, we are kind of a dual career couple. I suppose we're fortunate that we have a sort of career combination which can work. You know, he's an academic in Oxford and that's where we live. So there isn't a lot of traveling involved for him. That means that when I do need to travel you know, that's okay because he's very unlikely to be traveling at the same time. So there's also sort of circumstance, but there's decisions we made uh, to kind of make this this work for us. I think the other thing that I'm, I'm happy to be very open about is, you know, we do have a cleaner. We've had, you know, after-school nannies in the past. Currently, we do after-school club and, and us kind of balancing it because it was challenging to find a nanny who wanted those hours. But, you know, we've kind of, we have help. And that's so important to us as well, because we do want the more limited time we have together as a family to be time that we spend really interacting and focusing on each other and, and focusing on the kids and also giving time to ourselves. That's something that I think we, you know, I personally am not great at it, something I'm working on, but, but kind of giving myself time as well. We have this whole sense of I must be doing everything all the time. And actually we can't, and we can't be everything to everyone. And that includes ourselves, but we need to be enough. And I think we often put ourselves last. Well said. We're coming to the end of this conversation. Let's come back to the theme of ambition. Uh, if someone is listening to this and who is really ambitious in their career, has young children, and they're well cared for, let's imagine they have a childcare that works well. What could that person do this week? Just one small practical thing to work towards their ambitious career dream. I think the one thing that I would say is be really brave. Go have or arrange a conversation with a senior leader who you respect and you admire, introduce yourself, say, you know, what you're looking for and ask them about their experience and what advice they would give you. Mm. Those are excellent suggestions. Thank you so much, Gabriel. If people want to connect with you and find out more about you or find out more about Orsted, where would they go? So they can find me on LinkedIn, Gabriel Davis. You'll be able to, to look me up there. And not very many people called Gabriel. So it's not, not too tricky to find me. Otherwise, you can look at our website at orsted.com and see all the amazing things that my organization is doing. I'm super proud to work there, that's for sure. But yeah, if you want to get my contact details, please just get in touch with Brina. And I'm very happy for her to pass those on. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope this was really useful and I certainly thought it was. Thank you again to Gabriel for being such a fantastic interview guest. If you're listening and this has been helpful to you in any way, but you would like further support, then check out the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. It is a network and a programme for like-minded, ambitious individuals 
who are parents, it's for anyone across sectors, from the NHS to energy sectors to charities, but it brings together a really amazing community of women and some men who are ambitious about their careers and enjoy their young children. You can find out more on leadersplus.org.uk. I think by the time this podcast goes out, the applications will probably be open. We will only have one cohort in 2022, so get your application in by the deadline and all the info will be on the website, I'm sure. And if they're not open yet, then just have a look at leadersplus.org.uk forward slash register interest and you can make sure you register interest and then you get an email when the application's open. And also, finance shouldn't be a barrier. There's some subsidised places available for those in financially challenging circumstances. Until next time, have a wonderful week.